Matthew, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jordan. Well, good afternoon. It's good to be back with you guys. And we are continuing through our series in Matthew. And if you remember one thing from this series, it's that the Gospel of Matthew, looking at the life of Jesus, is about the fact that Jesus brings us into a better kingdom, or just better kingdom for short. So as we've been saying, all of us live in a imagined kingdom or a story that we tell ourselves about how we can be successful, how we can be happy, and then we measure our success based on if we're achieving these milestones according to this story. And so Matthew is about the fact that Jesus wants to take us out of whatever small or often self-centered story or kingdom that we're living in and bring us into his bigger story, the story of the kingdom of God. And what we're seeing today is that Jesus gives us a better identity. Better identity. Now, what's an identity? Uh, One of the best ways I've heard, heard it summed up is your identity is how you experience yourself. How you experience yourself. So, who am I really? Like, who is Steve? And do I like who I am? Okay, so what's your experience of yourself? And I think it's fair to say that the mechanisms for identity formation that our culture gives us come up empty. If you don't feel like they do, uh, just probably give it time. And uh, not too long ago, I watched the, I'm sure at least a couple of you in here have seen it. I recently watched the Taylor Swift documentary, uh, Miss Americana. And if you have questions about why I watched it, you can talk to me after service. Um, But it was, so it was, It was fascinating. So on one hand, it it gave me a greater appreciation for the kind of stress that or pressure an artist like her experiences. Uh, But in particular, what I found fascinating is that throughout the documentary, she makes statements like this. She says, you know, when you make it, or at least when I made it to the top of the mountain, I I find myself asking, is this it? What's next? Uh, She also said, you know, I think we love the sound of people clapping for us because it helps us forget even for a moment how much we believe that we're not enough. And so here's Taylor Swift, and you could argue, you know, when it comes to modern identity formation and authenticity and achievement are like key pillars in modern identity formation, right? If you're authentic, if you're successful. Like she is model par excellence of model of modern identity formation. But even according to her own admittance, she's saying, you know, even amid all my success, and she's handled a lot of pressure really well, she's saying, even I sense this fragility underneath it all. And I'm still trying to figure out what to do with it. And so it's as if, and we see this with pop icons all the time, so it's almost as if the more we get from the world, the less we're able to handle it, it seems like. And so 
What we're going to look at today is, does Jesus give us a better means of identity formation? You know, maybe it's something you got from your family. Maybe it's something you're getting from your culture. Does he give us a better identity, and what does that actually look like on the ground? And so here's how we'll break down this passage. First, we'll, we'll walk through the passage, and we'll look at the historical context of Jesus getting baptized. So we'll see Jesus' identity. What's the identity of Jesus? And then number two, in light of Jesus' identity, what's the identity that he gives us? Okay, so number one, Jesus' identity. Number two, our identity in light of relationship with Jesus. Okay, so first, number one, Jesus's identity. So here, this is the first time we see Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you're watching a superhero film or you're watching a documentary biography about a famous figure, this, this is that scene where that figure steps in and you see them for the first time. And in, this, in just these few verses, we see a one, two, three punch of who Jesus is. And the first thing we see is that Jesus is the greatest person we've ever seen. So he comes up to John, and John the Baptist at this time, he, he's a great prophet. He's got the crowds. He's referred to as the new Elijah. And Elijah is the big deal in the Old Testament. I mean, you can almost say that Elijah is to prophets as Steve Jobs is to innovation, something like that. But yet, John is begging to be baptized by Jesus. And so, you know, Jesus must be great if John's saying, no, I want to I submit to you. I want to be baptized by you. And then second, we know Jesus is such a big deal because in verse 17, when he comes out of the water and God the Father declares over him, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God is quoting scripture here to Jesus, and this is a fusion of two Old Testament quotes. So the first quote comes from Psalm 2, which was a messianic psalm, uh, where it's prophesying that there will be a king in the line of David who God says, you are my son, and he's going to make everything right. And then the second part, with whom I am well pleased, that comes from Isaiah 42, which foretells of a special figure who is going to come, and God is going to be very pleased with him and how he secures redemption for God's people. And so if you're an Israelite in this, in this day, you're expecting this great figure to show up sometime. Again, what we're seeing is this great figure that's been prophesied throughout the Old Testament, okay, continuity from old to new, this is he, okay? It's God himself, in fact. So Jesus is the greatest. Number two, who's Jesus? He's the greatest, but his greatness doesn't express itself in the way that you think because his greatness is characterized by servanthood and substitution. Servanthood and substitution. How you see this is John's baptism, it was a little, it was, we won't go into it today, but it was a little different than the baptism we have today. Essentially what John's baptism was, was it was a baptism of repentance. It was a way for those in the community to say, I am a sinner in need of the grace of God. So when Jesus steps into the water and he says, John, I want you to baptize me, essentially what he's saying is, I'm a sinner in need of repentance. And John's thinking, wait, this is backwards, because of all the people here, me included, you're the only one who doesn't need to repent. You know, you're the only sinless one. And so John's looking at Jesus and he's saying, you're down there and I'm up here, or you're in my place, but I'm in your place. What's going on there? And Jesus answers him in verse 15, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And that's the key. Jesus is saying, I'm not getting in this water because I'm a sinner, but I'm getting in this water because I'm come not as another religious founder to tell you, here are the steps to enlightenment, or here's the standard you need to keep to get God's love. No, I'm God himself come to exceed the standard for you. And from here on out, from Jesus getting dunked in the water to rising again from the dead, you're going to see his entire life is characterized by servanthood to others and absolute obedience to God the Father. 
And so this is the puzzle of Jesus because he's the greatest, he's God, but his greatness isn't how we like to think of ourselves as great. His greatness comes through servanthood and substitution, okay, him living the life we can't live on our own. So that's how his greatness expresses itself. And then third and final part of his identity is he is God's beloved child. God's beloved child. So see what God pronounces over him in verse 17. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This pronouncement that the father places on his son Jesus is what will carry him through his entire life. Through every dark tunnel, moment of betrayal and loneliness, this is what, which are many, this is what Jesus is going to hang on to. And so this is who Jesus is. He's the greatest, characterized by servanthood substitution, and he's God's dearly loved son. So what's the cash value here in terms of in addition to understanding Jesus, what does this mean for us? And the wonder of the scriptures is that what we're taught over and again in the Bible is that when you follow Jesus, which there's no prerequisite for, all you have to say is, okay, when you follow Jesus— What we're told is that you become mysteriously, mystically united to Jesus so that everything that is true of Jesus is true of you. Or like a way to capture this terminology is union with Christ. If you're in an airplane, wherever that airplane goes, you will go. Paul uses this language of you're in Christ. What's true of Jesus, wherever he goes, you will go. And one of the clearest, richest places in Scripture where we see this is in Ephesians chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul, he uses this language of, anytime you see the phrase in Christ, this is this union with Christ language. And here's just a few verses from Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, or in Christ, before the foundation of the world. In love, he, or God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus. And it's one run-on sentence for many more verses to follow, where you keep saying, in him you have redemption, in him you have forgiveness, in him you have a new beginning, in him you have the promise of a new earth, in him you have the Holy Spirit, through Jesus, through Jesus, through Jesus. And so in other words, what we're being told here is, like what you're meant to do is, if you've been baptized, if you know Jesus, what you want to do, like imagine this, you're to place yourself in the water, right next to Jesus, as God the Father proclaims in front of everybody, you are my daughter, you are my son, who has all of my love. That's what you get when you know Jesus. And so now let's talk about what does the experience of this actually feel like and look like on the ground as this identity begins to get stamped further and further into your soul. And the first thing that we see now that we move from Jesus' identity to our identity, okay, what does our identity, if we know Jesus, look like? First, it means that you are God's beloved child before you do anything. Before you do anything. And in our culture, we are conditioned to believe that you are somebody if blank. You're somebody if those in your profession acknowledge you as somebody. You're somebody if you have a romantic partner. You're somebody if you can stop having social anxiety. 
You, you're somebody if you start feeling like a joy to people rather than a burden. You're somebody if. You're somebody if. And what we see here at the baptism of Jesus is Jesus, or God says, this is my child who has all of my pleasure. He has all of my heart. And it's almost funny how upside down this is because at this point in Jesus' life, he hasn't done anything. He hasn't made a disciple. He hasn't healed a sick person. He hasn't taught a lesson. All we can really know from the scriptures at this point is he's sometimes been kind of a pain to his parents just by virtue of being a child. He's been learning the scriptures from his mom and dad, and he became probably a mediocre, mediocre woodworker from his father Joseph. Like, that's basically what Jesus has done up until this point in his life. But yet, God the Father is saying, I, you have all of my love. And you realize this is how your relationship with God works. I recently took a counseling class. It was a week-long counseling class. Took it, uh, yeah, two weeks ago, and it was great. And one of the things the counselor was, this was a recurring theme he was sharing about how, how crucial the first few years of a child's life is. The first few years of a child's life is monumental in, in their identity, in their, do they have a stable sense of self-regard or not? And he shared this story about, he has two sons, and when his sons were about three and five, he said, you know, my five-year-old, he could go to the fridge, get the gallon of milk, and walk it across the kitchen to the kitchen table, and, you know, put the cup there, unscrew the lid, and most of the time, get it into the cup without making a mess. But what would happen? The three-year-old would see his big brother do this thing, and he would say, me do, right? <laughs> I'm saying this now with, with my own sons. And so he said, you know, sometimes if I wasn't really paying attention, and I wasn't watching them. Suddenly, before I knew it, the three-year-old, he, he's like, not, one, not a one in a billion chance could he accomplish this task, but he gets the milk, he gets halfway across the kitchen, he trips, and, you know, milk just spills everywhere, and he goes, you know, in that moment, if I'm thinking what I know as a psychologist, if I'm thinking developmentally, I'll say, good job, buddy, you made it halfway, but he, he, just, he just admitted, he said, Rarely did I think developmentally. In fact, usually I would, I would get upset. If I, was already, if I was really stretched thin, I'd yell. And I, I want you to take an honest look at if you think God usually acts in the latter way with you, almost as if he's, just, he's waiting for you to mess up. He's waiting for you to spill the milk, as it were. He's just, he's, he's hanging back there just coming in to condemn you or to grow distant and cold toward you. But God always thinks developmentally with you, as it were. And even when you sin, even when you feel ashamed, he moves toward you with nothing but compassion, patience, encouragement. I mean, some of you may have had a parent or parents that communicated to you verbally or non-verbally, I will love you once you start acting worthy of my love. And this is the exact opposite of how God works with you because you're his dearly loved child before you do anything. And to give a pretty vivid example of the power of this, I was recently listening to an interview where the person being interviewed was admitting that they had a, a long-term significant addiction to pornography. And, you know, it was at least 10 years, and, but they, they broke free of it. And the interviewer was asking them, you know, 
what was it for you that allowed you to break free? Because those of you who have struggled with this or you do struggle with it or you know people who do, I mean, it, it's really hard. So the interview was asking, what was it that enabled you to break free of it? And he, the, the interviewee responded with, they said, you know, this may sound really weird, but it was once I finally began to know that, especially in that moment right after the porn binge, when I was feeling ashamed, unworthy, dirty, when I began to know that in that moment, God actually cherished me, that he actually adores me, okay, not the act itself, but he comes toward me because he wants to help me remove the things in my life that are eating away at my soul. And, you know, because shame only, keeping things in the dark, shame, that, that's what feeds addiction of any kind. So he said, once I began to feel that in the fiber of my being, that's when I was able to break free. Because that's, that's the power of this kind of identity formation, when you know that God loves you before you do anything, and even when you sin. So that's number one, before you do anything. Number two, you're a God's beloved child, and this is the truest thing about you. It's the truest thing about you. So what we'll see next week is Jesus is tempted by Satan himself in the wilderness, and, you know, one of the things that Satan goes after is he tries to get Jesus to question his identity as God's son. He'll say, if you are the son of God, if you are the son, are you really God's son? And because this conviction that I am dearly loved by God, was it the core of who Jesus was and is? This is what enabled him to defeat Satan in the wilderness. It was what enabled him to maintain a non-anxious presence with his friends, even when they're freaking out. It was what enabled him to not spiral into depression when he learns that most of his friends are fair-weathered fans, right? This, this was who he is. He, it was the truest part about Jesus. And so for you, ask, just take a moment here and ask yourself, what is the truest thing about me? What is most true about me? I'm intelligent. I'm successful. I'm a mother. I'm single. I'm gay. I'm straight. I'm beautiful. I'm undesirable. I'm loved. I'm not loved. I'm lonely. I'm an imposter. I'm frustrated. I'm numb. What is most true about you? Positive or negative. And here's the thing. Note that, especially when it comes to the negative things, gospel identity doesn't mean you erase things that are true about you. So you may be successful. You may be intelligent. All of you that I know are. Okay, or, or the negative. Maybe you did fail. You do hide things about yourself. Maybe you say, I am a victim. I was abused. These things, it's, hear this, it's not that these things are lies. It's what the problem is, is we, when we take these things that are merely true and drive them down into what is most true, that's when we spin out. That's either when we get arrogant, when we're living up, or what I've found just as a pastor with most people, that's when we live just with this ongoing sense of condemnation. And so what God wants you to do is he wants you to take that, and it's often things you're not 
consciously thinking, but it's in your subconscious. It's impacting how you respond to people, how you feel, how you think. And to take whatever identity marker you're holding on to and, and demote it to a distant second place so that what you know is most true of you is that God pronounces over you have all of my love. And to try to illustrate the power of this, so if you can bring up this little graphic. John makes all the graphics here, by the way. These aren't me. So um, I couldn't even do a circle like that. So, so this is an identity that's empty. Okay, this is, off, this is pretty much any identity formation from the world, right? Because any means of identity formation from the world, it's going to be fragile because it's not rooted in anything permanent, even if, if, even if you like it. It's not ultimately secure. Okay, and so a person who has an empty personal circle, this is someone who's still seeking, someone who's not sure of who they are, okay, someone who doesn't have a stable sense of self-regard. And so this person in general, when they move out into the world, okay, especially in relationships, there's somebody who either keeps walls between them and other people, they don't let people fully in, or the opposite way, it's like you need validation, uh, maybe it's, it's a codependency where you have to have the presence of somebody or you have to have the affirmation of somebody. But on the other hand, the experience of identity that God gives you, and if you can bring up the other circle, this is a full or a becoming full per- personal circle where you have a stable sense of who you are because every single human being has such a deep need to be loved, to be loved a deep need to belong, a deep need to be in relationship with someone in whom there, is, there are no secrets and no condemnation. When this is your circle, when you know that you are loved by God, not just in an abstract, I'm saved by God kind of way, but the active personal experience of communion with God and this kind of, a, of pronouncement over you, you are my child, then you're free. Okay, you have an antidote to shame and sin. There is an unflappability about you when it comes to stressful situations. Okay, you're, you're much more relationally healthy because now you no longer need things from people. Okay, you can move toward people in closeness, but you don't need to be needed. This is why Jesus was so relationally healthy. Okay, he didn't need other people to, to fill his identity circle because he absolutely knew who he was. And so the identity that you get in the kingdom of Jesus through union with Christ is the fact that God sees all of you, he knows all your secrets, and doesn't, not only doesn't condemn you, but positively cherishes you. This is the most true thing about who you are. Okay, so number two, it's, it's the truest thing about you. Number three, your identity is secure. Okay, any identity you're going to get from yourself or the world is inherently going to be insecure because it's rooted in something temporal. Okay, but the identity you get And Jesus is absolutely secure. Because the question you have to ask is, you know, how do I know that God isn't capricious or finicky? Like, probably most or all of you have known people who promised to love you until they didn't. And the answer is, go back to John the Baptist looking at Jesus. Remember, he says, you're in my place, and I'm in your place. Or, you're down there, and I'm up here. And baptism or, or water in the Bible is often a metaphor for judgment. And so what we're meant to do here is you know, put yourself in John's position, looking at Jesus in the water, and what it's meant to be is a foreshadow of the cross, where Jesus doesn't enter into judgment of waters, but the judgment of God's condemnation on sin. 
And so the reason why we get to be, why we can say with John the Baptist, I'm in your place. I have boldness and access to God. I have unqualified and unconditional love is because as you look at the cross, you can say, you're in my place. Okay, you're being laid bare and you do receive condemnation. Okay, you're, you're getting the judgment that I've deserved for the way I've treated God and for other people. Why? So that I can be in your place. Seen as absolutely obedient, absolutely precious. And then he rises from the dead, securing this identity for you. And so this is how you know, come what may. God's warmth toward you isn't finicky like other people. Okay, and so it's secure, which leads to the next thing. You are God's dearly loved child. Okay, before you do anything, it's the truest thing about you. It's absolutely secure. And it builds over time. And the question that maybe all of you are asking, maybe hopefully asking at this moment is, okay, I believe it and I can cognitively understand these things that we're seeing. Or maybe I don't believe this yet, but I, I can see why this is appealing. But, you know, whatever shoes you're in, say you're saying, okay, I, I believe this cognitively, but how come I don't often feel this? Okay, because it's like Wednesday comes and all this stuff we're talking about just feels like a distant pipe. Somebody says something, I send an email with a typo, and suddenly, you know, this identity that I have has just gone out the window. And this is where the scriptures repeatedly assure us that while your objective status as God's child is secure because of Christ, your subjective experience will grow over time. Okay, and so the uh, the Apostle John, and we had this in our, our, our call to worship this afternoon, he is the Apostle, I mean, he had the audacity to, to call himself the disciple who Jesus loved in the Gospel of John. We saw this a few weeks ago, and we're meant to put ourselves in his position, being, I'm the disciple who Jesus loves. He was the one who was leaning against the chest of Jesus at the final supper. And John writes in 1 John 3, and you, you can pull it up again, where he's talking about our status of being loved by God. And he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But when he appears, that's Jesus, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And we could soak in this for hours, but notice what he's saying. There's a, there's a present reality right there in the middle. Beloved, we are God's children now. Objective fact. But what we will be in terms of our character changing, right, our essence changing, and our subjective experience of having this kind of confidence and stable self-regard has not yet fully appeared, but we know that when he appears, that's saying when Jesus comes to renew the earth and we see him face to face, we shall be fully like him, okay, both in character and in our experience. And so John's saying, don't give up, even though you're frustrated by the fact that you it's like, okay, yeah, if I, if I really believe this, I wouldn't have this addiction, or at least it wouldn't be as strong, or I wouldn't have this pattern with relationships. He's saying, hang on, because it will grow over time, and Christ is committed to loving you into this future. And one of the, the, the best illustrations I heard, I think I'm borrowing this from John Mark Comer, I think, is where I'm adopting this from. So when I first became a dad, and you can— you can pull up this picture. 
Uh, in this picture, that is Titus when he's about two weeks old. When I first became a dad, how much did I know about being a dad? Next to nothing. And, I mean, even here in this photo, I'm, maybe I'm smiling. I look kind of confident, but really I'm just terrified he's going to suffocate. So that's why I'm, you know, holding him there so he doesn't flip over. I remember when, so when you take a baby home from the hospital, they won't leave you, they won't let you leave, at least in Northern Virginia, because it's Northern Virginia. They won't let you leave without a car seat. And so Kelsey, Kelsey's getting Titus ready, you know, in the hospital to leave. And I go to get the car and I pull it around to the drop-off area to get the car seat out of the car and bring it inside. Well, I, I go around the car to get the car seat out, and there's 500 buttons on these things. I, didn't, I couldn't figure out what button to, or what buttons to push to get it out. It's like I didn't realize you needed an engineering degree to get this thing out of the car. So, I mean, I'm not joking. Those of you who know me are like, I'm not surprised. Okay, 10 minutes go by, 15 minutes go by. I'm texting Kelsey. I promise I'm coming. I'm trying to get this thing. I'm tr- at first, I try to act, you know, smooth. Like, oh, yeah, it's just because, you know, something was off. But then I give up all pretense, and I'm starting to kind of lose it. And there's this there's this woman probably in her 40s. She's on the phone in the drop-off area outside, and she's on the phone watching me, and finally, 10 minutes into this thing, she just, she puts her hand over the receiver, and she goes, you're a new parent, aren't you? (laughs) I was like, how do you know I'm a new parent? Okay, I knew next to nothing about being a dad. I still, now I know maybe half a percent about being a dad. But the question is, even in that moment with the car seat, or in this moment here, when I have no idea what I'm doing, my status as a father was unquestioned. Okay, but my experience of being a father was thin. Okay, and as the years have gone by, I'm slowly learning how to, to like being patient more. I'm slowly learning how to contextualize my love and my communication to each child, depending on their temperament. And so God is helping me grow right into the subjective experience of the objective status I've already had since Titus was already born. And so when God says to you, you're, you're my child now, but what you will be hasn't yet appeared yet. He's saying, even though there are going to be moments where you're just like, am I just imagining things that you care about me in any kind of, kind of way? Or if you really love me, wouldn't you do the ABC? He's saying, be patient. And it's often going to be up and down. It's often going to be three steps backwards, forward, maybe then four steps backward. But keep going because I am loving you into that future. Okay, the death of Jesus was so powerful, he secured this for you. And his present intercession for you, as he prays for you, is so steadfast that this will happen. And the more you begin to get this, it makes all the difference in the world. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of the Most High. And so we are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for what you give us as your children. And I pray for those who don't know you yet, that you'll help them to see uh, just how beautiful this is. Um, and most importantly, how beautiful Jesus is and how much you've done to secure us in this and to help us experience it day by day. Uh, For all of us in here having a hard time believing this in some way, shape, or form, I pray that you'll use the administration of your sacrament that we're about to take, uh, the community of this church, the continual uh, being in your word uh, as individuals and as a community throughout the week, among many other things, to help us to know who we are and then to invite other people into it. Thank you for how kind and good you are, that you never leave us or forsake us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.